Hi, and welcome to a Really Good Enough Parent podcast. My name is Christine Altwees. I'm a licensed marriage and family therapist. For 30 years, I've worked in intercountry adoption. I'm also the proud mother to five amazing humans. I'm the clinical director at Pona Roots Counseling Center, where we train and treat with a family systems approach. I've created a Really Good Enough Parent podcast because honestly, it seems like the right thing to do. I have 30 years of professional parenting experience. I was raised by two wonderful teachers, so I had great role modeling at home. And at Pono Roots, I trained therapists to work with children and families. Most importantly, for the purpose of this podcast, I feel like it would be just plain stingy of me to not share the stories of the parents I've known throughout my life. So what, you might ask, is a good enough parent? Long story short, A British psychoanalyst and pediatrician, Donald Winnicott, studied mothers and coined the term the good enough mother. In 1987, an Austrian psychologist, Bruno Bettelheim, published a book called A Good Enough Parent. While Dr. Bettelheim experienced professional criticism later in life and parts of his book I don't agree with, his primary theory has been embraced again recently with more books and research published to support his point. In the preface to his book, he writes... In order to raise a child well, one ought not to try to be a perfect parent as much as one should not expect one's child to be or to become a perfect individual. Perfection is not within the grasp of ordinary human beings. Efforts to attain it typically interfere with that lenient response to the imperfections of others, including those of one's child, which alone make good human relations possible. Dr. Marilyn Wedge, someone I follow for her research on ADHD, says this about being a good enough mother. It involves a balancing act between two equally important processes for a child's healthy cognitive development and even his future happiness. One, at first the mother or caretaker must devotedly attend to the infant's every need. Two, the mother must gradually allow a baby to experience a need apart from its immediate fulfillment although naturally this time period must be very short at first and increase with time. This means a child must experience healthy frustration in order to learn the important lessons in life. So in sum, with good enough mothering, a child has the ability to live in two worlds, the world of illusion or fantasy and magic on the one hand, and on the other hand, a world that does not always conform to his or her wishes. So back to my thoughts for the point of this podcast. In today's hyper-focused, anxiety-prone world, it feels like a good time to slow down and shift attention to basics. Many parents I meet are frantic and concerned that they are screwing up their children. Most of these parents are already doing so much to ensure their children's happiness and health. So much, and yet, the feeling of not doing enough prevails. And often, the much that they are doing can result in anxious, dysregulated children and exhausted parents. So in this podcast, I will share stories from good enough parents who have learned to connect with their children. So if good enough is good enough, why is the podcast called a really good enough parent? Good question. I initially used good enough as the working title. The more I sat with it, the more it made me feel sad. No offense to the great work put in by many child experts, but maybe this is the point I'm working to counter with this podcast. I wanted to encourage parents while helping them to take a breath. Adding the really to good enough provides the supportive emphasis, really. And maybe it underscores our modern need for superlatives and excess, but there you have it, really. So thanks for listening in. Thanks in advance for hanging with us. I'm excited to share so many fabulous parenting stories with you. If you are listening, it's probably because you are a parent, so I'm preaching to the choir here. Good parenting is an investment in our shared future, and really good enough parenting will ensure that we get there safely. Thanks for listening in. Aloha.
welcome to a Really Good Enough Parent podcast. My name is Christine Altwies. I'm a licensed marriage and family therapist, and for 30 years I worked in intercountry and domestic adoption and family counseling. I'm the clinical director at Pona Roots Counseling Center, where our focus is on family systems, and I'm also a mother. I've created a Really Good Enough Parent podcast in response to what we see every day in our clinic. Childhood mental health issues are skyrocketing, and it doesn't have to be this way. I know that really good enough parenting is a skill we all possess. As a parent myself, I also understand how easy it is to lose sight and to mistrust or panic in the face of a melting down child or an impudent teen. The good news is that you have what it takes to help your child. Take a breath, see your child's innocence. You can do this. This podcast will feature some of the incredible people I've been lucky enough to meet in my life. No two have raised their children the same, and all have done a really good enough job. You'll hear new perspectives on how to handle tough situations. You'll be reminded of how your own parenting takes its cue from childhood. And hopefully, you'll feel invigorated to go do a really good enough job at this most rewarding of all human endeavors. A Really Good Enough Parent podcast is designed to be story time for adults. So thanks for being here with me today. I do appreciate you. Enjoy the show. Hi, and welcome back to a Really Good Enough Parent podcast. I'm Christine Altwies, and with me today is my ecstatic-looking guest, (laughs) my father, Gerald Altwies, life long learner, knitter, singer, actor, and career Waldorf teacher. Welcome, Dad. Thank you very much. I'm honored to be here. Well, we are honored to have you because you are our first guest. Primo uno. Good. So um, one quick note, you're going to have to speak at a volume that is audible to the audience, Dad. I will do that. Back of the house. Thank you. Back of the house. Back of the house, says the former actor, actor, former radio reader. Okay, Dad, so we're here to talk about really good enough parenting, and I consider you to be a really good enough parent. That's humbling. He's going to start crying. Yeah, it's okay. It's the first time he's ever heard that kind of praise. So maybe let's make the first tip for really good enough parents. Call your parents up and tell them they were really good enough parents. Exactly. Please do that and say it often. Okay. And I'm going to keep saying often that you got to speak up so the audience can hear your beautiful, resonant, baritone voice. All right. All right. Dad, tell me about your childhood. Ah, my childhood was growing up in very little lower middle classes, Detroit, with my five siblings and uh father who worked in the factory every day of his life, and my mother who took care of our house and fed us and washed our clothes and ironed them and was there for everything we needed. Uh, We went to church on Sunday, having polished our shoes on Saturday, and eventually I joined the church choir with my father. And I had neighborhood friends, loved my neighborhood friends, played outside all the time, just doing all kinds of exciting, creative, wonderful, imaginative things. Because we we had uh, the tree in the side yard and the field at the end of the street, and we made it into uh, various worlds that we wanted to inhabit at various ages. Uh, Eventually, I started high school in a neighborhood that um, had, um, yeah, I guess they were the kids behind the doors. We didn't play outside anymore, but we went to school functions. We did um, dances and clubs and football games. We won them all. Um, Ice skating in the wintertime. 
Was... Like, to those who don't know my dad, the sports reference is a bit, okay, maybe you were more sporty when you were younger. Um, well, I didn't play on the team, but I was there for the team. There for the team. So dad, what from all this background data are we taking away that helped inform your really good enough parenting outlook later on? I don't want to say absentee parenting, but my parents didn't have a lot of suggestions for my lifestyle, my future, my career. They didn't have any, actually. Uh, when I started uh, night school after high school, started night school in college, they said, oh, how are you going to pay for it? Um, I don't think they really cared what I was going to study, uh, but they wanted to know how it would all work out. Um, and eventually, um, I guess they got used to the idea that I was going to college. I was working all the time. I got a job at my first job at a pain job at 14. I uh, was 14 years old. I would get on a bus and uh, go downtown Detroit. Actually, that's not true. I would go downtown to school. And then after school, I would walk to my job in downtown Detroit because it was just a few more blocks. And I um, did that for a number, a good number of years, worked downtown. That's so one of the things that we talk about when you, sorry to cut you off, but the, uh, what did you call it, absentee parenting? In a way, it was, you know, it was all the basics. You know, I had everything taken care of. I never worried about dinner or clothes or warm bed. Um, but there was never anything about the future. It was always assumed we would just do what everybody else did, which was probably get a job in a factory or an office. Um, and that's all it was thought about. I don't think, you know, every parent thinks that way, but uh, my parents come from very simple stock and we're happy to have a paycheck. And so be I able think to if we're looking at the current context of parenting and the pressure to have your child uh, involved in lots of activities and doing lots of things that they're set for life it was sort of the opposite back then. You sort of wandered and found your own way without any direction from guidance counselors or school therapists or parents who said, do this thing so you can do that thing later on. You know, that's a very interesting point because I had siblings, all of which did go traditional routes. They did what people in our family circumstance did. And there was something that I chose a different path. I think a lot of it had to do with the fact that I had a neighbor friend who was going to college. And um, he was just weird. He was just different. He was always reading a book. I could never figure that out. I'd see him walking home down across the front of my house with a book in his hand after he got off the bus at the corner and he'd be walking home with a book in his hand. And I thought that was weird, but he um, seemed like a nice guy. So I thought, what's that all about? Hmm, school. So you're saying this guy was maybe a subtle influence on you. And that's one of the points we want to make is that kids learn from many different vantage points. And just because, you know, we're just because we're not telling them, read this, know this, learn this, doesn't mean they're not absorbing information all around them and taking cues from that. So in your case, it sounds like the most powerful influence to your desire or idea to go to college was a kid reading a book next door? There's no doubt about it. He challenged me. Uh, we became very good friends, still are, some 65 years later. <laughs> Um, and at one point, because I was plotting my way through night school courses, taking one class at a time, because I was working, um, he said, I don't think you're ever going to finish this. <laughs> and that was perhaps uh, the first and best challenge I've ever been given. And uh, I thought, somewhere inside of me, I thought, yes, I am. I'm going to do this. And 10 years later, <laughs> I had a college degree, but um, lots of living and life experiences intervened. But I guess I realized that um, this wasn't something 
anti-family that I should do something so radically different. Um, I did have one cousin, no, two cousins who were college kids. Um, but um, I decided, uh, yes, this was something I really wanted to pursue. And, and uh, I eventually managed to get the paper. Okay, so you go to college and you decide to become a teacher. I'm trying to move it along here because we need to get to the tips part of this yeah, podcast. So the tips for the parents come next. So you went off to college, you got your degree. Yeah, so this happened? isn't just my life story, is it? It's also about <laughs> suggesting alternatives. Uh, yeah, I got my degree. But, you know, did my parents help me along that route? Well, they provided security that I actually didn't have to fight the world. I could do something for myself, which included college classes. So that very, I'm very, very, very um, proud of my parents as parents. Um, they did everything they knew how to do to the best. Um, and we were able to go all the directions we wanted to go. And in my case, it was to pursue an education. So if, if I'm um, understanding what you're saying then is that one of the important points here is that you felt loved, you felt connected, you felt safe and secure, absolutely. and that's what allowed you to then go out and pursue something that was completely different from what the family had previously modeled or what your siblings did or what the family had historically done. You felt free to push off and seek your own adventure because you had the security and love and connection to your family. So in there somewhere, my parents must have been, I could almost say, at least my mother, uh, listening to things I spoke about that um, she could, in her way, encourage. Um, she didn't present obstacles saying, you know, why aren't you getting a better part-time job or working harder? Why are you wasting your time going to school? Um, she allowed me to pursue my dreams. Uh, even sometimes I wasn't sure what my dream was, but she sort of let things happen that way for me. That's a great point. All right, so you go to college, you get your degree, you want to be a teacher. Eventually I decided on teaching. Yes, it took me a lot of three different career choices, uh, school uh, majors before I finally ended up in elementary school teaching. And that was, the best because through that I was introduced to this radical, maybe not, but different kind of school program which was um, called Waldorf Education. And when I uh, heard about it and looking at my three-year-old daughter at, by this time, um, I thought, now I know what education for children should is all about. Um, and so I enrolled my daughter in a Waldorf school, which was nearby or in t well, on the other side of town, actually. Uh, but at least it's in Detroit um, and uh, began a teacher training program at, after my bachelor's in the Waldorf method so that I could learn to become a Waldorf teacher. So um, the, the Waldorf education and for for people <laughs> listening, uh, Dad and I have had about 18 previous takes. Uh, this is take number 429. And um, we've decided we're not going to go into <laughs> a deep dive on Waldorf education and anthroposophy. I will put in the show notes information about anthroposophy oh, okay. and Waldorf Good education. Idea. There will be references here and there, no doubt, as he elucidates and shares his brilliant insights and tips to how to be a really good enough parent. Um, but there will be uh, more in the in the show notes for those who want information on this radical educational system. Right, but I can't avoid talking in some little form about Waldorf because Waldorf laid out for me. Um, um, how do I put this? It's so basic. It's so hard to identify uh, a plan that. Um, suggested children have various stages in their life that need to be, that can best be attended to as various stages and not just an overall. I mean, some, you know, we used to call it um, child rearing. You used to really just want to rear your kids. Today we talk about um, all these fancy ways of um, 
taking care of our kids, getting them into these programs. But uh, where am I going with this? In the, but Waldorf um, looks at it so simply. Uh, there are just very simple things that people need that are, happen to be children um, that are basic to becoming better people as they get older. Um, not hurrying them along with academics or, or pushing them forward with all these things, but looking at them as individuals and saying, um, what's going on with this individual and what can I bring in um, in terms of world knowledge that, uh, that is appropriate for this human at this point in their life? So it was really simple uh, in, the, in that case. If you look at your child, listen to your child, watch your child and see what they need, um, there's a lot of innate knowledge that parents have if they allow themselves and, and don't get caught up and worried about uh, the newest, latest, best thing that they can superimpose on their child's life to make them become that future success model that they want them to be. A successful modern person is a happy person, a creative person, a person that um, feels comfortable and fulfilled, I think. Um, and all the other things, relationships and uh, professional uh, accomplishments, um, health for that matter, all of these things come along with this contented, um, um, human being who has been appropriately met. Okay, so with that in mind, what would you say to a parent who wants to know what some takeaways might be from this educational system? Well, of course you have to. Takeaways. Of course, in the you know you, you have to guide your child. I mean, the youngest children need absolute hands-on guidance, you know, for, obviously. Uh, you've got to make sure they're safe and, and healthy, and you have to tell them to do things maybe they don't want to do uh, to keep them safe and uh, eventually more happy by these rules. But um, they get old sooner than we think, <laughs> uh, and they start to have they start to show themselves, and I think you have to pay attention to who they are at these uh, from the very earliest stages um, and just watch them and let them be. I mean, you, you bring them, you bring them the right environment that they can actually um, thrive. I, ask me, ask me another question. I'm getting lost here. Okay. Well, this would be a good point uh, to bring in your breathing idea. Okay. Well, I've said this in previous takes uh, when we tried to get this thing off the ground. Um, it sounds idiotic, I don't know, um, but I often, but I have said, I've, you know, people say, what is Waldorf education? It's breathing in and breathing out. Um, in terms of children in school, they breathe in, the presentation that the live human being on the stage in front of them, as opposed to the guide beside them. Um, there's a little thing that people say in the education world these days, is that the um, sage on the stage or the guide on the side. Uh, today's model seems more to be the guide on the side. And you let children discover the world through all kinds of, um, well, unfortunately, uh, non-human ways of learning about the world. Uh, okay, we'll just call it like it is. We're anti-device, anti-technology, anti-teaching your well, kids. Well, anti is a strong word. I don't know. We want to keep it. It's uh, not a preferred method. Well, Definitely it, the Waldorf system is known for not using technology in the schools until now. It's probably introducing it in high school, but um, certainly that the lie. Yeah, I mean, it's just the idea that uh, you learn to be human by being with humans. Um, and um, that's the goal. You want to be as human as you can be and as complete being human as you can be. Um, so, you know, you breathe in this wonderful content that the teacher has prepared for you. Um, and then you breathe out 
artistic activities or some kind of activity. Um, that's the whole of education in a classroom every single day. Whatever the grade level, the teacher should be prepared to present something appropriate to the age level and let the child take it in, work with it imaginatively, and not ask them to regurgitate what was just done, but let it take a while to uh, stew around in them. And uh, certainly not to, at least till the next day, you ask them to talk about what we said yesterday and um, then make, then produce something, create something that relates to that. Um, I often thought, you know, the Waldorf approach again is this uh, not textbook approach, but to give them a blank, uh, 40 page, uh, 10 by six page, uh, white notebook, empty, hand it to them. It's their main lesson book. And whatever the topic is, they're going to, uh, put all that they learn each day on a page in that book. And each morning the children are asked to, um, look at that blank page, pick up their marker, pen, ink, uh, crayon, pencil, whatever it is, and make a mark on that page. And I think after 12 years of Waldorf education, every day making a mark on a blank page, showing something of who you are, has a way of forming your character, of giving you um, courage and um, letting you realize you you can do something. Um, you don't know what's, what it's going to be necessarily, but that you have the possibility of creating something. And it's unique to you. It's not what everybody else does, but it's unique to you. And that's a wonderful um, experience to have every school day for 12 years. Face that blank page and do something. It takes courage. You don't want to mess up. You don't want to be something of, of value. And so you try. It's All right. And back life. then, from what I understand, <clears throat> there was their uh, paper wasn't just uh, started and then tossed. If you had a piece of paper, you used it. And that was it. You had one piece of paper. You did your work. There was no scrunching it up and tossing it in the trash can. You made your mark and you committed to it. I'd like to move on now. All That's right. okay. Um, I'd like to hear some specific thoughts. We'll take away informational bits for parents who are wondering, okay, this is all great, but I'm not going to be doing these things with my kid because my kid maybe isn't at a Waldorf school. So some specific ideas around what a parent might do at home with their child that relates to this fabulous education system that you partook of for so many years? It's what my mother did without any knowledge ever, ever having heard the word Waldorf. She provided a safe, secure um, environment that we could depend on that allowed us to do so many things. My mother was an intuitively in, uh, um, aware human being um, and you don't need private, she didn't need private school education and certainly not the bills um, to raise happy adjusted children. That's me. Um, what can parents do? Again, schedule um, a, a day that the children can um, feel like they know what's, what's going to happen. They feel uh, the day has been planned for them in a, um, way that they can make, you know, do something successful. Are we still on? Why does that matter? Can you share a little bit more about why that matters? Scheduling and parents taking care of planning things? Well, kids don't need to be worried about, uh, you know, if they are going to have the opportunity to do what they think they're supposed to be doing. Uh, they want it to be, they want to have a certain framework. All right, look at the playground. On a playground, you're allowed to go and have fun and do whatever you want, but there are rules. And the more you follow the rules, it turns out the more fun you can have. Same with um, children and parenting, I think. Um, 
if the rules are there and the, the uh, you know when the bell's going to ring, um, you can actually have um, a more productive day. Um, so I'd like to push back a little bit on the rules because um, I'm not I'm not 100% in agreement about too many rules and maybe we're saying the same thing. Um, but I think what we're saying is framework, consistency um, for the kids. But often I find the level of rules to be um, overwhelming for kids. And when there are too many rules, then they start to get um, too focused on following the rules. Can you say a little bit more? Well, about all right. That? Well, because it I certainly seems didn't to me think of Waldorf as a highly, you know, rule focused educational system. There was ritual and routine and schedule, but I didn't get an overwhelming sense of rules. Right. Uh, it, 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 it varies. I mean, we had, I had parents who uh, would say they loved Waldorf because there were no rules. Kids seemed to be able to do whatever they wanted to do anytime they wanted to do it. Same classroom, different parent, say, I like this school because of the rules. Everybody seems to know what they're supposed to do, and then they follow the rules and they do it. Same setting, same person teaching, and yet people had opposite, uh, almost opposite uh, opinions of what they were, what their children were experiencing. I think it's because it had to do with being more natural. Um, kids thrive with, um, with I guess the word, there must be a happier PC word for rules, but um, kids thrive when they know the limits, when they know the boundaries. Um, and it makes their life at home happier, I think, if they know, you know, some parents want their kids to wash the dishes. Great. If the kids expect that, they do it, they're happy. Um, the day they don't wash the dishes, they think, oh, something's wrong. I was supposed to wash the dishes. Other parents say, no, kids got to do homework. They don't have time for dishes after dinner. So they let the kid not do dishes to do their homework. Oh, but also they've had dinner together. That's a nice thing too. Uh, they've sat down together and spent the moments, a few moments of sharing the day's experience, um, which uh, is just an incredibly wonderful thing for kids to be able to, uh, if they you know, can identify this safe environment, something they can rely on, and then feel comfortable sharing their day, uh, happy and sad, good and bad, um, successes and not successes with the people around them. They need okay, to- Okay, so I'm uh, hearing dinner time is important. Family dinner, sitting down, if that's possible, and it's not possible for all families. Some parents work and some parents can't do that, but if possible- All right, well, maybe it's once a week. Dinner. Maybe it's, if it's not every night dinner, maybe it's a once a week affair. Uh, we're going to have dinner together on Friday night. Or maybe we uh, like to go out and, and play baseball together in the park and have a picnic afterwards. Um, create some kind of a place or time when people, when the kids can uh, feel like they have some time that they can actually share with their uh, family members. Um, what else? Let's see. All right, so now we're moving on to your own specific parenting and things that you remember doing or not doing well as a really good enough parent. Well, it might, we had the advantage of being a Waldorf family, um, but it can be done in any household, I guess. Our neighborhood kids used to um, knock on the door and come into the kitchen. Um, when our kids were very, very young and talked to, to us, the parents. I mean, these were teenage kids who'd come in and our kids were still young, younger, uh, but maybe uh, my wife was chopping vegetables and getting dinner ready and the kids would show up in our kitchen and friend, my wife would let them chop vegetables and they seemed to come back often to do that. So they liked the smell of the kitchen or something. Uh, that seemed to be uh, something that didn't need Waldorf to do. Uh, but also, um, we made sure that uh, we, the kids knew how to make things, um, not just buy the best and latest, but to actually make things. 
we went perhaps to an extreme, but I don't think the kids suffered. By that I mean, you know, we made toys, we made clothes, or we made food. Um, you know, we made all these things that many people would, um, oh, they'd say, well, it's easier to go, I save time by going out and buying it. But no, the actual experience of seeing where things come from, you know, milk doesn't come from the store, it comes from cows, uh, that kind of thing. Um, uh, that's That can be, um, so there was creativity in our house. Um, the kids learned to, um, saw people making things and they, also had opportunities to make things themselves. So uh, that I think was um, very, very valuable uh, as they grew up and realized they could um, make their life. Things that you wish you had done differently. I wish we had had more time with the kids. Um, we were well, often involved in parent, um, in. Um, meetings, teacher meetings, um, meeting with other parents. Um, our kids were well cared for. We made sure they weren't on their own. But uh, when you get a call and find out that the neighbor has taken your child, oh, wait a minute, that was you, the oldest daughter, um, taking your son to the hospital because they jumped through a glass door. Um, for a very good reason, can you believe? <laughs> he wasn't on there drugs was or anything. He, he just... jumped through the glass door. I don't remember yeah. what the good reason. Yeah, it was. was on the side. It was. He wondered if he could jump the width of the driveway. Nope, and... different story. What I remember is the youngest brother um, was asked by the middle brother if putting a football helmet on and then taking the head and putting it through the glass door would result in any cuts oh. and oh. so as he started to put the head through the door the arm came up and the arm was the part that got cut the head was fine oh that sounds very much like my children and it also says i got the story wrong because it wasn't there so uh, that's also a problem yeah my kids were creative as can be when it comes to ex exciting adventures i tell them the one about the uh, jumping over the over the barrels yeah, so when kids didn't have devices, they used to make up their own excitement, and we used to uh, lay barrels in the alley and then create ramps and jump over them like evil Knievel, and then usually there'd be a child laying at the end of the barrel row to extend the barrels, and that would be the place where the bike would presumably be landing also. But magically, no one was ever... Yeah, yeah. They, for some survived. reason, they felt that the only way you could extend the length of the barrels were at the far end of it, not at the beginning, which would have been a lot safer. But yeah, they did successfully jump barrels uh, on their bicycle with humans involved. Um, so exciting, creating, and they loved it. They, uh, We have stories to tell now. So yeah, natural things that uh, you can never plan for. Uh, Lots of fun. Okay, I mean, a big part of this now, my, my family upbringing, is the fact that we um, lived in the city. Should we go there? Well, I guess we're about to. Why is uh, that important and a big part of your family upbringing? What does well, that mean? For you know, my family parents? was, my extended family thought we were strange for, uh, for, I, for choosing the places we like to live, which you could define as within the red line district of um, um, insurance coverage. Uh, we were Detroit. city dwellers in Detroit. We loved being in the city. And my family uh, were all suburbanites by the time we were young parents, uh, the rest of my extended family. And they often said, well, it doesn't make sense. You don't want them to see television, so you don't have a television in your house because you think there's too much violence or news coverage of things that aren't nice for kids to look at. And yet you live in a city where these things are actually happening. And I said, well, first of all, they don't happen in my neighborhood immediately, maybe happening somewhere in the city, but not next door to me. Well, one time. Um, but um, we um, also felt that it was important for the children to, excuse me, meet real people and then make up their own minds as to whether these real people were someone they wanted to know or 
be hang around with or not, and not uh, get a television perspective on it or a dram dramatized uh, perspective on it, but to actually have an experience with real live people. And they made a lot of great contacts by doing that for their entire, uh, well, let's see, and yeah, their entire life in various parts of the city. I'm most proud of my parenting by the fact that we had lived in the city and met real people and got involved in the city. And second, that we didn't have enough, we didn't have money to buy them things, a lot of things, so that we had to make do. Making do is part of being a good enough, really good enough parent, I think, is making do. Uh, one terrible moment in my life, well, it was actually not, it was kind of memorable. We made so many things. One Christmas, I was having to rush off to the hardware store to pick up something to make another toy for Christmas. And I asked my little, I brought my little son along with me. And the department store had changed their setup because they were having this whole section now. Instead of nursery, it was all toys. So we ran through what used to be where they sold plants and went through this toy section on our way to the hardware section. And my young son pulled on my hand and stopped me and dead in my tracks and looked at these tables full of toys and said, Dad, some people buy these things. He was hoping that his father would figure this out someday and actually buy these fancy glitzy things. I don't think he ever was angry about not having them, but... Um, he certainly realized there was a difference between what his friends were doing and what he was doing with living with his toys. Anyway. I think the issue nowadays is that kids have so much access to so many things and see um, so much around them in their devices, in their phones. They're constantly being targeted by marketing uh, departments of, you know, major merchandisers and so I think we've come to a point where kids may unfortunately be experiencing their own value or their own relevance or their own connectedness as relates to how much stuff they have because it's all around them and they're seeing other kids with it and they're rating themselves I think with that and I think it's a very dangerous precedent um, whereas we didn't have that because a we didn't have even a television let alone a cell phone or computer screens to be seeing all the products that we didn't have we were really grateful for rainbow colored shoelaces at Christmas or a handmade rainbow colored very, rainbow colored uh, handmade wooden trucks which you know Although they were made with love and they were well sanded and varnished, they were fairly rudimentary. They didn't have, they had four wheels often and a body. Um, Beautifully so colored, painted. They were painted. They were often painted. Uh, but the presents were simple and it didn't seem to bother us at all um, to never have anything plastic or store-bought. Um, but well, I think that's a difficult that's a difficult line to toe nowadays for parents, and I would definitely encourage parents to consider their the amount of consuming they do, how they consume, you know, what the kids' feelings are re related to when and how they have a voice in consumption. Um, well, but it's definitely something for parents to be aware of nowadays. I'm so glad you're there to translate my uh, experience, the way I, I brought up my kids into today's terms. And a couple of things. One is hearing what you just said. Um, I realize that uh, it's hard. I mean, when your kids don't have the latest and the brand that everybody else has, especially today, and maybe not so bad then when brands weren't so important. Um, but um, are we still on? I'm getting a funny screen right here. We're oh, okay. still on, but I think this this topic. I'd like to just say a few more things. We're okay. still on. I can imagine it's difficult for kids today that, uh, you know, if they don't get the best and the latest because their friends have it. But to uh, create a life or a family environment 
that lets them realize it's okay not to have the latest and the best and the most expensive, but that um, there are reasons, you know, that you know we can make do sometimes for other things, even if we can afford to do it. Let's make do. Yeah. Okay. As we're nearing the end, um, things that you wish you had done differently, things that you regret. You mentioned time, that you didn't spend enough time with your kids, or you were very busy professionally running the small school and being teachers and having part-time jobs, because back then that was necessary to um, pay the bills, was to have part-time jobs in addition to being full-time teachers. Are there other things that you think uh, a modern parent should be aware of that you wish you had maybe done differently? I guess I have to say, um, seeing how my children have turned out. You're good. They, hmm? No regrets. You're good. You I mean, good it's important to live with no regrets. Um, I'm, I'm sure time is a big one. I mean, there are moments when I think I really, really shortchange my kids on time and in my involvement in their life, but um, because of time. But other than that, I mean, I look at my children, my three children, and I think I'm so happy that they are happy, I think. I think truly deep down they're happy. And I know they're creative and they're loving human beings. Um, and something must have been... And, you know, who they are, they're born with something. And we didn't kill it. We let it we let it uh, survive and thrive. So uh, I'm grateful that we provided an environment that allowed their individuality to thrive. And one of the things that maybe is worth mentioning is um, I think back on how often you didn't know what the heck we were doing. Um, and I think it's different now because there is so much more out there that's targeting children. Um, but um, when I think about the mistakes that were made, the mistakes that we made, and how we weren't afraid to make the mistakes, and half the time we didn't know we were making the mistakes, like I said, um, because we were um, out doing things without you really knowing or being able to check up on us. But I think that trust element is really important, whether it was overt trust or just benign neglect because you were busy <laughs> doing other things. We were out doing things very often at a young age. Um, and because we'd been raised feeling attached and safe and trusted, we were okay. Thank you. And that's um, similar to what you said about your own childhood. Yeah, it was. Uh, there was, I knew what was right and what was wrong. Um, maybe, I don't think right and wrong has changed that much in, from generation to generation. I had models in their way. My parents modeled good behavior. They did that what they did, they did well, and they did properly. And that should be something we can still count on today. That if you see dad go off to work or mom go off to work, and you know they're doing a good job out there as a professional, you're going to imitate that to some degree yourself, I think. So we shouldn't feel guilty about having to uh, go off and do our jobs We are if we're modeling good good living. And kids right. need good models. Final question, Dad. So anything that's currently obsessing or preoccupying you in a good way, something you're reading or doing or thinking about, a specific book you want to recommend? Well, at this age, I'm very happy to be writing, not a book that I'm going to publish or anything like that, but just recalling my life and, uh, and and enjoying it again or looking differently into it. I sometimes feel the word 
has photobombed my life. I have had so many wonderful experiences given to me, provided for me, and I've been in them. But did I, I'm, as I'm writing about it, I think, did I penetrate them? Did I go deep enough? I'm not living with guilt or regret. I'm just amazed at the incredible number of wonderful things that my life has um, included and the experiences that I have been allowed to have from my family who didn't have me around them when these many of these things were happening. But I am grateful for those experiences and I hope to some degree that gratitude and that experience has um, influenced my children and my grandchildren so that they can see life, a good life lived well and experienced well is really good enough. So um, on those fabulous words, I love the idea that you think you photobombed your own life, but that's definitely something that gives us all pause to be aware of being mindful and being present in the moment and not hopefully 70 years later looking back and feeling like you were occasionally a ghost in your own photos. Hmm. Go deeper. Go deeper. Thank you for this. Eat more kale. Enlightening, helpful, tip-filled stroll down Waldorf and Detroit memory lane. It's been a pleasure talking to you. Oh, thank you. We should do this more often. <laughs> thank you so much, Christine. Enjoyed it. Thank you, Dad. Bye-bye. Good night. Bye-bye. This has been another episode of a Really Good Enough Parent podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, I'd love it if you'd leave me a rating or subscribe. Subscribing helps boost my ratings, and rating me obviously helps boost my ratings, but only if you liked what you heard. But apropos that, whether or not you do or don't like this, I really do like feedback. So please drop me a line if you'd like. Let me know if there's someone you want me to interview or a certain topic you'd like me to tackle. You can find out more about a Really Good Enough Parent podcast on the Pono Roots website at ponoroots.org. That's P-O-N-O-R-O-O-T-S dot org. Pono Roots is a nonprofit program, and if you wish to support our work, donations are always welcome. And with that, I'll leave you a quote from Carl Jung and something that my children remind me of every day. You are what you do, not what you say you'll do. Thank you. Take care. Aloha. George loves Detroit.